We have some big changes going on at This American President. We just unveiled our new cover art featuring an illustration by the artist Nip Rogers. You can see more of his work at niprogers.com. We're also getting new theme music for our episodes, but we want to get your input on what theme we should choose. If you sign up to be a supporter on our Patreon, you can vote this week for which theme you like best. Just go to patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident to sign up. Our Patreon supporters will have access to our growing podcast community and can offer their input for polls like this. They'll also be able to get This American President merchandise and have access to an exclusive episode about George Washington's farewell address. You're about to hear a preview of that episode. I wanted to cover the farewell address because it is a fascinating summation of all the wisdom George Washington accumulated throughout his long career during the founding of the United States. Wisdom that I believe has a lot to offer for our country today. You can hear the full episode, vote on our theme music, and get merchandise if you sign up to support us on patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident. And now, on to the episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. The year is 1796. The United States had been in existence for just 20 years. Compared to other nations, many of whom had been around for centuries, the U.S. is literally an infant country. It had been forged through war, through revolution. It had established a constitution and instituted a new government. Those were turbulent years, at a time when America was a weak country threatened by great European empires. And it also had something unique. It believed that it had a unique mission, one rooted in the fact that it declared itself a republic based on a universal idea, the idea that all men are created equal. No nation had ever made such an audacious claim. And while there had been many republics before, there was a unique challenge to this one, because it was making a universal claim, something with implications for the world over, and also because it was big. 
It consisted of several states, which themselves were the size of whole nations around the world. This introduced a dilemma. The bigger a country was, the stronger the government had to be to hold it together. But this was a republic, one based on the rights of man, one where government would have to be limited in some way. It was a delicate balance, a big dilemma for the founding era, creating a republic strong enough to govern a large nation, but limited enough that it wouldn't threaten the rights of its citizens. Americans felt a unique sense of responsibility. As a republic, they felt that they were the guardians of something special. In a world full of kings and emperors, they were an example that a nation did not need to be governed by a monarch, but could be governed by its own people. When America's first president was sworn in, he said to the world, quote, the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. The sacred fire of liberty, it reminds me of an athlete with an Olympic torch. For a brief period, that athlete is the only one with the torch. He has control over it and is responsible for its well-being. By 1796, that president, George Washington, had done the most to carry that torch, the torch of liberty. He was the dominant figure during the most formative time for the republic. He was at the end of two terms as the nation's chief executive. He had been unanimously elected president by the Electoral College twice. He was as close to being universally loved by his country as anyone in history. He had seen it all, had braved British musket fire, suffered with his starving soldiers, presided over the debates during the Constitutional Convention, and executed its first government. On him, the American people placed their hopes over and over. And yet, on September 19, 1796, the American people learned some stunning news. On that day, on the second page of the American Daily Advertiser newspaper, they saw a letter addressed to friends and fellow citizens. That letter announced the momentous news that George Washington was retiring. America was about to lose the only leader it had ever known. I pause here because it's important to take measure of just how scary this was to the American people. If you listen to our episodes on FDR, you may recall how when he died after serving for 12 years as president, Americans felt lost. For many of them, he was the only leader they could remember and they wondered if they could survive without him. Well, that feeling was even more intense for Washington, since he had been the most important American figure for even longer, over two decades. There would be a new president. The election for a new president was a few months away, and that president would not be sworn in until March of the following year. Whoever that person would be would have a pretty tough time filling Washington's shoes. As Americans read through the letter, they realized that there was much more than just the news of his retirement. The letter took up several columns of the newspaper, and it contained what Washington called sentiments. They were thoughts, things to reflect on, to meditate on. As they read through those thoughts, they found several pieces of advice, nuggets of wisdom from the nation's father to his children. It was like when Solomon wrote in Proverbs, quote, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. As Americans embarked on their experiment in self-government, they would now have to go on without George Washington. Through this document, 
Washington was telling them how to do it. What he said and what it means for us today are the subjects of this episode of This American President. When the country ratified the Constitution back in 1788, the immediate question was who would be the nation's first president. As the victorious commander during the Revolution, George Washington was the obvious choice. But he was reluctant. Part of it was that he loved Mount Vernon, his home. He loved being there with his family, and he loved farming. But there was another reason. It was risky. To him, it seemed that he personally had little to gain and much to lose. His reputation was already in the stratosphere. He was universally beloved in every corner of the country. No one in American history had ever been as revered as Washington was after the Revolution. They loved him for winning independence, but they revered him because he could be trusted with power. In 1783, after winning the war, he did something many people didn't expect. He gave up all his power, surrendered his commission, and went back to life as a private citizen. It was an act that earned him worldwide admiration. Becoming president meant undertaking something totally new and untried, and it also meant entering the world of politics, one of the most precarious professions in the world. It's often said that few things are more fleeting than political power. So much is out of a leader's control. An economic depression could destroy his or her credibility or popularity. It's like the famous sword of Damocles, the ancient story about a sword that could fall on the head of a leader any moment. Washington could only go downhill from where he was, but he was told that he had to be the first president. The country needed him. It could agree on nothing, not even where the capital should be. But if Washington took office, the one man everyone loved, he could make the hard decisions and do what was necessary to get the country running. So he came to the presidency reluctantly, he was elected unanimously by the Electoral College, the only president so honored, and he served reluctantly. Like all presidents, he made decisions, decisions that earned him both praise and criticism. And sometimes that criticism could be harsh. Some even called him a traitor to the country. Nowadays, we are so used to seeing our presidents attacked in everything they do. Well, even George Washington was no exception. He wanted to leave after one term, Actually, after just a couple of years into his first term, he wanted to set the government in order and then resign and leave his successor in power. But he decided to stay because the other founders said he had to remain president. And so he did. He was reelected unanimously to a second term. And by 1796, at the end of his second term, he was at the cusp of retirement. He had decided to leave for good and nothing would stop him. He was tired but he was also wounded. He was a man used to praise. But for once, he was being attacked and attacked viciously. The famous writer Thomas Paine sent him a letter where he said, quote, the world will be puzzled to decide whether you are an apostate or an imposter, whether you have abandoned good principles, or whether you had ever had any. But the opposition didn't just come from his outward opponents. It came from his own team. He saw his cabinet erupt into divisions. At one side was Alexander Hamilton, his Secretary of Treasury. On the other side was his Secretary of State, 
Thomas Jefferson. Both men disagreed over many things. It went back to that dilemma I mentioned earlier about how strong the federal government should be in a republic. Hamilton felt a strong central government was necessary to protect the nation. Jefferson felt that such a government would threaten the rights of its citizens. He pushed for a limited government. And there also came the issue of foreign policy. There were two nations that America had inextricably been linked. One was Great Britain, a nation we had once been a part of, one that most Americans at the time had descended from ethnically, one which we had shared cultural and religious ties, one whose political system we had much in common with. We had also a great deal of trade with Great Britain, more than any other country in the world. But they were also the country that we felt had tyrannized us, the country from which we had declared independence and had fought against. The other nation was France. It was the country we had allied with during our War of Independence. Without the French monarchy's help, it was unlikely that those ragtag colonies would have ever achieved independence. French and American soldiers had embraced each other as comrades and fought and died together during that war. Years after we had won independence in 1789, the French Revolution broke out. Just like the Americans, the French declared themselves a republic and declared their belief in universal values, liberty, equality, brotherhood. Many Americans felt sympathetic. And when France went to war with Britain, Americans felt torn. Some wanted us to support the French. After all, they had supported us. Hamilton felt America should tie itself with Britain, especially since we had had a lot of trade with them. But Jefferson sided with France. After all, we were both republics, and we ourselves had fought a war against Britain. As time wore on, Washington sided more and more with Hamilton. Taking Hamilton's advice, he supported a strong federal government, which meant raising taxes and building a national bank. During the American Revolution, Washington saw how the colonies had failed to help the military. He saw how weak the federal government had been under the Articles of Confederation. The government at that time couldn't tax and raise money to support the army. He felt we could have fought the war more effectively if the federal government was stronger. Perhaps the war would have ended sooner. He and Hamilton had served together in the army. They both saw how costly it was to have a weak government, how many soldiers suffered and died because the government couldn't raise the funds they needed for food and supplies. And when the war was over, Washington saw potential enemies all around us, like Britain and France. Now that we were an independent nation, he felt America still needed a strong federal government, and that belief made him unpopular in some circles. These decisions helped to widen the divide between Hamilton, Jefferson, and their supporters. From that divide, the first political parties sprang up, the Federalists led by Hamilton and the Democratic Republicans led by Jefferson. This divide alarmed Washington. He feared that the nation might split apart. He desperately tried to keep his cabinet together, but it divided into those two factions. Washington was determined to retire, but he still hoped to influence his fellow citizens, to warn them about the dangers that abounded in a hostile world. Although he had been attacked in ways he had never experienced before, he was still the most admired man in the country. He knew that whatever he wrote would command the respect of the American people. He hoped that the country would survive the turmoil would rise and prosper, and he hoped to impart advice that would guide his country through present and future storms. That's why he wrote his farewell address, 
to put the full weight of his prestige behind a series of warnings and recommendations to his fellow countrymen. Before we get into Washington's advice, one of the easiest things to overlook in the farewell address is who it's addressed to. You'll notice that it was written, quote, to the people of the United States. John Avalon, a commentator who just wrote a book on the farewell address, noted that this itself was something revolutionary. Remember, this was a time of kings and emperors, and they all communicated through the parliament. George Washington could have done the same with the Congress. After all, he gave his inaugural addresses and his State of the Union speeches to Congress. But this was different. This was addressed to his fellow citizens. He was speaking straight to the American people. The wisdom that he offered, the wisdom we are about to explore, was something he entrusted them with, not the politicians or government bureaucrats. There is another thing I want to address, and that is the controversy about who actually wrote the farewell address. Some have questioned whether Washington actually wrote it, or if it really reflected his views. Well, the truth is that others did write it. Washington had them write it in the same way modern presidents have speechwriters draft their speeches. Back in 1792, George Washington was finishing his first term as president and was hoping to leave office after a single term. At that time, he had James Madison write a draft for a short farewell address. But Washington's advisors, including Hamilton, Madison, and Jefferson, all convinced him that he had to stand for election again for the sake of the country. So he stood for re-election in 1792 and shelved Madison's draft. By 1796, when his second term was ending, he had resolved once and for all to leave office. So he took the Madison draft and had Alexander Hamilton use it as the basis of a new draft of a farewell address. He actually gave Hamilton the choice of using the old draft or making a new one. Hamilton ended up writing a new one, but used some of what was in the old draft. If you read Madison's original draft, you can see a number of lines that made it in the final cut in 1796. There were many people who believed that Hamilton was actually running the show during Washington's presidency, and accordingly that he was the main author of the farewell address. This has always been exaggerated because Washington sometimes rejected Hamilton's advice, and Washington had the final say in what the address would look like. Washington was poring over the final draft right until he submitted it for publication, and he even made last-minute edits. He was a famously meticulous man, and it's unlikely that he would have ever published anything under his name that didn't reflect his views. Both Madison and Hamilton were intimately familiar with Washington's views, having worked with him for many years. They had written addresses for him before. Madison had even written Washington's first inaugural address. They both had a good idea of what Washington would endorse and wrote their drafts accordingly. They also knew that their influence on Washington might wane if the president believed that they were trying to manipulate him. The first president was no pushover and he was firmly in command of his administration. So whether it was through their decades-long familiarity with Washington's views, or Washington's own last-minute editing, the farewell address was truly the first president's political testament. And that leads us to the first piece of advice in the farewell address. Even though Washington supported a strong federal government, most Americans feared it. Most of them felt that the idea of such a government was un-American. After all, didn't we fight against such a tyrannical government when we fought against the British? This strain of thinking continued throughout our nation's history, 
It fueled Southern rebellion during the Civil War. Fear of federal tyranny continues to this day. Some of it is legitimate. The vast majority of Americans agree that the federal government should be limited. And we can always point to times when it's gotten something wrong or abused its power. What did George Washington think? The very first piece of advice Washington gives us in his farewell address is that our union, the government that binds our nation together, should be the same. This is the end of the preview. If you would like to hear the rest of this episode, sign up to support us at patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident. Those who sign up at the representative level or higher will be able to access the entire episode. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Please visit evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.